It's been two years, one month, and 18 days since I last treated a patient. In the previous episodes, I primarily talked about anatomy, physiology, and general neuroscience principles associated with pain. Today, we're going to focus on what you can do about pain now that you're armed with the academic knowledge. First, I want to lay out the difference between true danger signals versus haywire nervous system danger signals. Chronic pain has many different faces, and I'll remind you that all chronic pain is real. However, there are some versions of chronic pain that are truly mechanical or chemical in nature where no provider would give the derogatory version of the it's-all-in-your-head speech I've referenced before. The delineation is when the symptom of pain has associated signs to go with it as opposed to when the symptom of pain is alone. I feel the need to differentiate between what a sign and a symptom is in case there are listeners who aren't familiar with that difference. A symptom is something that you report to me, but I have no ability to verify. It's only what you feel. A sign, on the other hand, is something I can detect and report to you. Often signs and symptoms go together. If you break your leg, your symptom is a great deal of pain, and your sign is that the bone is protruding through your skin, showing me that it's broken. Sometimes you can have a sign without a symptom. For example, it's rare that you have any symptoms or feelings when you have high blood pressure but I can measure the high blood pressure with the blood pressure cuff, and that's what makes it a sign. One could argue that symptoms without signs may just be because medical technology and or observation skills have not advanced enough to detect all of the the associations between the two and what is missing. Regardless, in today's world, there are chronic pain conditions that have no detectable signs. I'm going to tell a couple patient stories. One with clear chemical-mechanical chronic pain, and one who had chronic pain with no detectable signs. My plan is to show you how the techniques to reduce or eliminate pain aren't really any different between the two cases. In fact, I'll even give a story from my own life to help demonstrate the point. However, before I tell the stories, I do need to get a little academic again to explain what I meant in the last episode about getting the back brain to, quote, not process the danger signal at all, so no pain is experienced that needs to be ignored. Our peripheral nervous system and peripheral and central nervous systems are kind of in a fight with each other, and it's the central nervous system's fault. There are many things that demand attention in the world, and going back to early human times, many of the demanding things were vital to survival. Is that rustling bush really a jaguar about to jump out and eat me? That's a big cliff. If I step too far forward, I'll fall and splatter all over the ground. This tastes really bitter. Bitter usually means poison, so I should spit it out instead of swallowing. We've discussed that the front brain tells the story of what happens behind it after the back brain processes the data it received from the senses. Specific kinds of rustling in bushes are processed by the auditory cortex, differentiating wind versus animal. The visual cortex's depth perception said that the drop-off of a cliff is a mile instead of an inch. And the combination of smell and taste receptors triggered bitter, which is the typical flavor a plant has produced that makes it poisonous to defend itself from being eaten. Seriously, kale is the texture of plastic and bitter like a poison. What else does it need to do to get us to stop eating the vile stuff? Anyway, back to the, the story... In the back brain, there are processes that are constantly prioritizing what needs our attention. It takes energy to run all the systems required to actively process data and to have the front brain tell the story about it. 
Our back brain is still stuck in the state of evolution that produced early humans, so it does everything it can to avoid burning unnecessary calories. In case you didn't know, the, the nervous system, particularly the brain, is the largest energy consumer in our body. It may be several days before you eat again. Of course, the front brain has learned that our version of hunting is driving to the grocery store, but the back brain still thinks we have to chase our food around. So our brain has some efficiency circuits that run when status quo is happening. They're low energy, <clears throat> and when something differs from the norm, they notify higher consciousness circuitry that is much more energy intense. The classic example of this is what happens when we drive the same route to and from work for years. Occasionally, we leave work, then get home sometime later and have no idea how we got there. People, understandably, get scared by this, thinking, I could have gotten in an accident. In reality, the threat of an accident wasn't there at all. When you drove home, cars moved according to expectation. No one ran any red lights, no pedestrians jumped out in front of you, etc. This status quo meant that you didn't need to actively attend to anything that was happening around you. All is well. However, if a car would have started drifting into your lane, your efficiency circuits would have registered that this is not normal and that you need to react immediately. Your consciousness circuits would have kicked in to high gear, causing you to slam on the brakes. This is one form of not processing in the brain where extra attention to something is simply not necessary. Another version is when two things collide and one takes higher attention priority because it's more necessary for survival. If you were to sprain your ankle, it would hurt. This is common sense. However, if you sprain your ankle in the middle of the street as a bus is barreling down on you, your brain can't be bothered with some ankle pain. You're about to die a terrible violent death. Without any pain, you run as fast as you can out of the street to avoid getting squished. Not being squished was a higher priority than your ankle injury. Pain would have been actively detrimental to your survival by limiting your ability to run as fast as you can. Now, many might say that your ankle would hurt later on, and in this case, this demonstration wouldn't necessarily be helpful in terms of chronic pain that lasts longer than a few seconds it took to run out of the street. Touche, intelligent person, but try this one on for size. How many times in your life have you found a bruise but have no idea how it got there? A bruise, by definition, is something that happened with enough force to cause tissues under your skin to rip and start bleeding. Something highly destructive happened. You bled under your skin, and what do you do? You look at it and go, huh, wonder how that got there. Then proceed to vigorously rub on it for no reason. Whatever else was going on at the time of injury was deemed more important than the tissue damage, so the pain signal was simply not processed. This has nothing to do with pain tolerance. Tolerance is the back brain processing the pain and the front brain deciding that you can push through it. In order to reference pain tolerance, you must have felt pain first to then tolerate it. Going back to the competition between peripheral and central nervous systems, the peripheral system needed to develop louder and louder yelling mechanisms for injury in early human history. Since the central gets pretty good at prioritizing attention on greater survival threats than, threats than simple pain signals, you could be in trouble if you never experience pain. Basically, in the circumstance of never processing pain signals, you're apt to cause greater and greater injury that could permanently disable you, thus ending your survival. 
The problem today is that modern human life is pretty cushy. Yes, I'm aware of starving children in Africa, but much of that is due to an intended shift to cushy society without the means to achieve it. Cultures who still live as hunter-gatherers, such as other parts of Africa or in the Amazon rainforest, as examples, don't have the same starving children problem. Cushing, cushy modern life does not present the same demand for central nervous system attention in order to survive. Therefore, the really loud peripheral system can get their messages processed without any resistance. I'd wager a large sum that early humans were the ones who had real pain tolerance, not anyone in today's day and age. Still, there are a lot of things that can go on that can block the pain signal from being processed, many of which aren't even understood or theorized yet in medical science. What's important is that you already have very complicated built-in systems to not process pain signals, even if they aren't tapped as much as they used to be in the past. The incredibly hard part is getting them to kick in when you want them to. Learning how to do this is going to take many months to years, show minimal to no payoff for at least six months, even with constant, all-day practice. What's worse, when you do achieve some level of control, it won't last for more than a few seconds. It's many more years of practice to build on those precious few seconds to turn them into minutes, hours, days, etc. Understand that the things I'm going to tell you next are so hard to accomplish that it is rare that people succeed in this venture. I don't say this to discourage you, it is simply a fact. If it were easy, there would be no such thing as chronic pain of any kind. I can assure you, the success rate of patients pulling this off in my history of practice is in the low teens. However, with dedication, time, practice, and patience with yourself, you can make headway. Okay, on to the story of stories of patients with chronic pain. The first patient I want to talk about is a pretty tragic story, but also a demonstration of how incredible this person was. She had been diagnosed with a specific kind of breast cancer that was fairly aggressive. However, a new medication was released to target the kind of breast cancer she had, so she was a good candidate to try it. It had passed the FDA approval process to be safe with realistic expectations for side effects that were not great enough to offset the benefit of the medication. The largest downside of this medication is that if a person was taken off of it, the breast cancer seemed to rebound with increased aggressiveness. Upon being released to the public, a new side effect was discovered that was not part present in the drug trials. This isn't necessarily unusual. Drug trials tried to get high volume of patients to test on, but even then, if there are 100,000 test subjects, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to the millions of patients when the drug is released to the public. A side effect with less than a 1% chance of happening can easily slip by the trial group by volume of trial patients alone. This breast cancer medication had a rare side effect of creating what is called a frozen shoulder, except not in the shoulder alone. It can, and often did, strike multiple joints beyond just the shoulder. For those who are not familiar with the frozen shoulder, pray you never have to experience one. This is a condition that to date is still not very well understood as to why it happens. Randomly, the tissue surrounding a joint, called the capsule, begins to inflame. The inflammation is severe, with many people citing a constant 6 to 10 out of 10 on the pain scale in the shoulder. This phase, called the freezing phase, typically lasts 6 to 8 months. The second phase, called the frozen phase, starts when the inflammation begins to subside. 
However, the high level of inflammation over so much time causes a lot of scarring around the joint capsule. This scarring causes, causes a significant loss of shoulder range of motion, sometimes upwards of 80% loss of total motion. The good news is that this phase is, phase is pretty painless when you're at rest, unlike the freezing phase, where it's extremely painful at rest and even more painful when you move. The second phase lasts 15 to 24 months. This is when you get to spend time with someone like me, cranking the shit out of your shoulder trying to get your motion back. That part is also painful. Going back to the patient, on the medication she ended up with quote-unquote frozen shoulder in both of her shoulders, one of her elbows, both of her hands, five of her fingers, and both of her hips. What's worse is that all of her joints never left the freezing phase of a true frozen shoulder. All of those areas I listed were at all times at least a 6 out of 10 on the pain scale with her average pain number being an 8 out of 10. I want to drive that point home. For one, there is no such thing as an 11 out of 10 that people like to conversationally tell me they are experiencing. A 10 is the max. In a 10, if you were to, say, be passing a kidney stone while on fire, then being run over by a monster truck, this would be a 10. She was at an 8 out of 10 for most of the day in well over a dozen places. Sit with that for a second. Now, as more people with this side effect were being discovered, the only solution to this pain problem seemed to be to stop taking the medication, which, as we discussed, has a strong propensity to rebound the breast cancer with increased aggressiveness. She was in her early 50s with a husband and two kids in their teenage years. She was not ready to succumb to breast cancer, so she stayed on the medication. This woman had the most incredible ability to laugh and joke in the face of this horrendous circumstance because, as she said, what else am I going to do? It's better than stressing and dwelling on the pain. Besides, laughter is the best medicine, isn't it? She's not wrong. Laughter and joy does have the ability to reduce pain. I still remember one of the visits where she caught me off guard with the greatest comedic timing to a question that I had asked 20 times before already. How are things feeling this week? She sighed, and in a dry affect said there was an incident with a cracker. And then she just let that statement hang in the air. Naturally, I can't do her delivery justice, but it was a perfect comedic delivery, rest assured. I cracked up, and she started to laugh too when she saw how hard I was laughing. This was our relationship. We laughed together whenever we got the chance, often jointly poking fun at the circumstance of circumstances of her life in this state because it helped reduce the pain. She explained that the cracker incident was a few days before when she bumped a cracker off her plate and instinctively tried to catch it before it hit the ground. As I'm sure you can imagine, someone who has a resting 8 out of 10 pain in their shoulder who then violently flings the arm out to catch a cracker would be in a bad state to say the least. My shoulder exploded in pain. I almost dropped to my knees, started crying, and then started laughing at the same time. What was I thinking trying to catch a cracker like I had the reflexes of one of my teenagers? I'm 51. So I've been dealing with the repercussions of that exceptional demonstration of dumb the last few days. I ask, what's your pain today? You know, it's actually a little better right now. I didn't think what I was saying was funny until you started to laugh. Then I realized that starting a conversation about an incident with a cracker was pretty funny too. Maybe I'm like a six right now. 
It's certainly not easy to find humor in a terrible situation, but I can't stress enough the power of joy in reducing pain. In her circumstance, where the pain is mechanical or chemical in origin, it is often the most potent tool available. Most people with chronic pain conditions are not in the last patient's position, though. The good news is the bag of tools available is much larger at preventing pain signal processing when the pain isn't mechanical or chemical in nature. They are no easier to use than being able to laugh in the face of a terrible situation like the last patient could. It's just that you have more options available. The next patient was someone who had non-mechanical chronic pain. She was also incredibly self-aware about how her level of global pain relative to the things that triggered it didn't really make sense. This made educating her much easier because she was receptive from the start. Her story began as everyone else's does with non-mechanical chronic pain that I referenced in the last episode. Blank years ago, blank happened, and nothing has been the same ever since. In her case, the first blank was 27 years ago, and the second blank was developing a pain in her mid-back about where her bra would lie. Today, she had variable pain in 90-plus percent of her body, with the original spot being the most painful and most often present. She noted that she could no longer wear a bra or sit with her back touching the back of a chair because it was too painful to the touch. She also came to see me because she noted that over her life, she could frequently go to PTs when the pain got really bad to get some tips on how to get the pain back under control again and then self-manage for a while. This is where I entered. As I said, she was quite self-aware with the pain that she was feeling and how it didn't really make sense relative to the forces put upon her when the pain would escalate. The major thing I try to latch on to is to help people start doing the incredibly important work of finding the flawed logic. Now, our brains are fantastic gymnasts and can perform all kinds of acrobatic thinking that makes delusion a permanent fixture. Being able to pick out other people's logical flaws is easy, but we are nearly incapable of seeing the logical flaws in our own thinking. All of us. Me too, but also you. Fundamentally, our brain doesn't want to be dumb, or more specifically, when something doesn't line up with your view of things, your front brain will just fabricate a story to make your preconceived notions quote-unquote fact, even though they aren't fact at all. I'm going to go into this more in the next episode, but for now, I'm laying the groundwork that finding your own logical flaws is insanely hard, hence the title of this episode. It would be a superpower to be able to always recognize your own logical flaws. About a month into our treatment plan, this patient revealed a crucial piece, crucial piece of information for me by complete chance. She told me that she sleeps on her back. Aha! Logical flaw! Identifying these flaws are one of the very few ways your front brain can override the back brain's processing of a pain signal. Or, a more appropriate description would be that the front brain gives the back brain permission to recognize that it doesn't actually need an aberrant pain signal and therefore can choose not to process it. Remember what I've said a bunch of times, the back brain doesn't give a shit what your front brain thinks. However, if the front brain can trick or manipulate the back brain like a puppet master, there can be some pretty significant results. Interesting, I say. You sleep on your back. Think about that for a minute. Does that not strike you as weird that you can sleep on your back but can't lean back in a chair or wear a bra? She sat silent for a second. Wait for it, I say to myself. I knew what was coming next. It wasn't that I knew the exact words she was going to say, 
but she was about to tell me some story about how it makes sense that sleeping on her back wouldn't be painful but sitting back in a chair would be. The gears were turning in her head, performing the standard mental gymnastics we all do to make a nonsensical situation make sense according to the story we've created for ourselves. P.S. What I just said is not disrespecting her. It's what we all do. It is a fact. Well, no, I don't think it's weird. Laying down is less pressure. It's relaxed position, right? I smile. Let's break that down for a second. When you're sitting in a chair, gravity is pushing down on your head. The pressure in your low back and hips is higher, but you leaning back in a chair is only a minimal increase in pressure on the spot where your mid-back touches the chair because gravity isn't adding to it. When you lay down in bed, gravity is mashing your mid-back into your bed. She sat silent again, gears turning, then, Oh my god, you're right. Wow, I thought for sure laying down was less pressure than sitting, but that doesn't make any sense at all. The following week, she came back glowing. With a giant grin on her face, she entered my office and said, Look, Adam, I'm wearing a bra. I haven't worn one of these in years. It hurts a little, but not very much. Thank you so much. This is it. It's the logical flaw that breaks through the mental gymnastics to, to display what is actual versus what is perceived. The back brain can take that cue and go, wait, yeah, this pain signal doesn't make sense. I don't need it. As I said, finding your own logical flaws is insanely hard. What can set you up for greater success is having all of the people in your life you trust be on the lookout for your logical flaws and tell you when they identify them. The harder part is that we humans are also really bad at being told when we're wrong. My job was to get to know a person in front of me really fast, then find the right kind of delivery of you're wrong without offending them. Most people don't have a job that requires that level of speedy word crafting. So it's on you when someone around you tells you you're wrong, not necessarily in a comforting way, that you can't fall into your own natural reactions to lash out or disbelieve what they say. Listen to the logical flaws when they point them out. The delivery doesn't matter. What becomes difficult when someone has been in pain for many years is that the pain is not only practiced by the back brain that I spoke about in the last episode, but it also becomes part of the front brain identity. I say, hey, let's go to a theme park. And you respond, I can't because my back. What does your back have to do with a theme park? The mental gymnastics kick in and say, well, roller coasters are really violent and that would surely make my already existing back pain worse. To which I reply, who said anything about a roller coaster? What I intended to do was the inner tube float down a lazy river. Try to pay attention to how often you bring up insert body part here in conversation. You'll find that you can logically bridge a conversation to how whatever is going on will influence your back pain when in actuality, if you break a conversation down into sentences, you'll find that the vast majority of those sentences have nothing to do with your back. Your brain decided to make them about your back. This isn't a character flaw, and I'm not wagging my finger at you. It's natural. It's how our brains work. The key here is that you need to separate yourself from your natural inclinations, which often requires other people's help. Give the back brain permission to not process the pain signal when it isn't relevant. This is hard. Super hard. Climbing a mountain bigger than Everest hard. But it is the key. 
The last piece I want to leave you with is a story of my own. Finding logical flaws is a really effective tool, but the other really effective tool is knowledge. The more you know, the easier it is for your brain to go into autopilot that is actually more pain-free version of autopilot. One of my hobbies is playing with my smoker. I love to cook anything and everything with fire. A few years ago, I was trying to shift a grate in my smoker, jiggled the thing a little too much, and that dislodged the water pan. For those of you who don't have a smoker, the water pan is just something to help keep the environment from getting too dry inside. It is, as the name suggests, a pan full of water. And it sits directly over the fire. The pan dropped about a foot, causing boiling water to splash out, getting on my shin and the top of my foot. The colloquial naming convention for burns is no longer used in medicine, but I'll use it here to give non-providers a sense of what happened. I ended up with a second-degree burn in both of those two locations. For providers, it was a deep partial thickness burn. The skin quickly turned into giant bulbous blisters filled with fluid, and once the blisters were open, the damaged flesh was exposed. Those of you with strong stomachs, feel free to Google image search deep partial thickness burn and you'll see what I had. Now, I have knowledge of burns. It's one of the things PTs treat, and I used to work at a top regional burn center. Wound care wasn't my strongest suit, but I was knowledgeable enough to know how to care for my own new wounds. The next day, I went to work, one pant leg rolled up, a shoe on one foot, and a flip-flop on the other. I left the wound exposed based on its presentation. Sometimes it's important to cover wounds. Sometimes it's important to keep them open. It all depends on the state of the wound. So here I am, in front of patients, with two large wounds exposed going on about my day. I had zero out of ten pain. I remind you, pain tolerance is feeling pain and pushing through it. I had no pain at all. Here's the thing, pain is a warning signal of damage. In the case of a burn wound like the one that I had, new skin has to grow over the wound as part of its healing. This new skin is extremely fragile while it is being created. That means that this kind of burn is really painful just to remind you, don't touch it. In my case, I had enough knowledge to know the state of the wound. I knew that so long as it wasn't being touched, there was no damage occurring and therefore healing could continue normally. Pain was irrelevant. My back brain was able to take the knowledge from my front brain and cut off the pain signal. Now if I brushed it or bumped it, I had a lot of pain. I had caused damage to the fragile tissue setting the healing process back. Also, had it become infected, that would have also been painful because of the damage that it was occurring, but in this case it never got infected. Plain and simply, the depth of knowledge I had about wounds allowed my front brain to give the back brain permission to not process the pain signal. Okay, there you have it, the solution to not having pain. Facetiousness aside, I recognize that while this episode was meant to provide solutions, those solutions are out of reach to most people. This is a very challenging subject to handle, but it is achievable with enough time, grit, patience, knowledge, laughter, and most importantly, humbleness to accept it when you're told you're logically flawed. I truly wish you the best of luck.